The political drama in Virginia continues. As we remember from our last episode, Governor Ralph Northam was still basking in the cheers of Democrats for his policy of letting babies die when the celebration was ruined by revelations that he had posed for a racist picture in his medical school yearbook 36 years ago. Northam denied he was in the picture, but he admitted that he had worn blackface to imitate suspected pedophile Michael Jackson. Democrats called on Northam to resign and cede his office to his lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, but then it was revealed that Fairfax had been accused of assaulting a woman in 2004 and had responded to the charges by calling the woman filthy names. Democrats then called on Fairfax to resign from the office he would have had if Northam had resigned so that Fairfax could cede Northam's office to Attorney General Mark Herring. But then Herring confessed that he had gone to a party in blackface, though he swore he wasn't posing as a suspected pedophile. Democrats called on Herring to resign so the Democrat Assembly leader Beauregard T. Buford could take the office Herring would have taken from Fairfax if Fairfax had taken the office from Northam if Northam had resigned. But it was then revealed that Buford had killed a man in Reno just to watch him die. Democrats then called on Buford to resign the office he would have taken from Herring if Herring had taken it from Fairfax, if Fairfax had taken it from Northam, if Northam had resigned, thus ceding the office to his secretary, Betty Sue Pusillanimous, until Ms. Pusillanimous was discovered in her basement engaged in a fantasy Civil War reenactment in which the Confederacy won. The chairman of the Virginia State Democratic Party, Simon Legree, in a statement released to a statue of Jefferson Davis, said, quote, I am hereby assuming the office of the governor so that the South might rise again. Also, for having said that, I resign, unquote. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. You know, political correctness was designed to make conservative beliefs unspeakable. That's its whole purpose, to define constitutional liberty as somehow inherently bigoted, racist, and wrong. And yet this week in Virginia, we're watching a semi-hilarious debacle in which Democrats, the party that weaponized political correctness, find that weapon blowing them up like a torpedo that turned around and sank the sub that fired it. It's reminiscent of the way Me Too charges, which were inspired by women's dislike of Donald Trump, ended up taking down so many Trump adversaries, from Harvey Weinstein to Al Franken. Why do so many leftists find themselves getting tangled in charges of racism? It's because leftism and racism are two stupid philosophies that share the same central mistake, the idea that some people are good. They're not. None of us is righteous. No, as the Bible says, not one. The concept of original sin is not just a central truth of Christianity. It is the central truth of any honest, happy, forgiving life. Think of yourself. Are you who you want to be? Are you the best possible version of yourself? If you answered yes, congratulations, you're a sociopath. Sane people wake up in the middle of the night full of a sense of moral inadequacy and regret because they are morally inadequate and have done things worth regretting. The lie that some people are good 
leads racists to feel that other groups of people are somehow worse than themselves. Every group, whites, blacks, Jews, women, men, Christians, every group with anything in common can be condemned for its characteristic flaws, including your group. Why? Because no one is righteous. No, not one. The lie that some people are good leads leftists to believe that government power should be infinite, that given the chance, righteous left-wing leaders will spend our money, direct our actions, and even dictate our speech better than we can ourselves. They won't. They'll become tyrants. Why? Because they're people, and people are full of sin. If there is one thing the Founding Fathers knew, it's that all people suck, and none should ever have too much power. Leftists and racists have forgotten that, and that's why it's increasingly difficult to tell them apart. We will talk more about what's happening in Virginia and more about the crazy ideas of the left in just a sec, but first, let's talk about your teeth. Your teeth, you want your teeth to look good. You know, it's actually, its I don't want to make jokes about it because if your teeth look bad, you look bad. You can't smile, you feel embarrassed. Candid.co can help you solve these problems in the easiest way possible. Candid is helping people gain confidence through accessible and affordable orthodontic care. Candid's network of highly trained orthodontists review each and every case and directs the entire aligner plan that you can do all of this online. It makes the process of straightening your teeth convenient and easy by having the customer take the process into their own hands. And even though the customer is taking the process into their own hands, they have a network of trained people to help you. Straighter and brighter teeth in an average of six months cost 65% less than braces. Candid makes clear aligners that are sent directly to your home and are customized specifically for you to straighten your teeth. You're just one step away from getting straighter, whiter teeth. Take advantage of Candid's risk-free modeling kit guarantee. Plus, when you use my dedicated link, candidco.com slash Clavin, you'll have save 50% on your modeling kit. That's candidco.com slash Clavin to get 50% off the price of your modeling kit. Candidco.com slash Clavin. You'll be able to have a bright, brilliant smile as you say, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. You know, I, I got to think out loud about what's happening in Virginia because it's really bothering me. Uh, and, and a lot of what I think about it is so politically incorrect. I'm almost afraid to say it out loud. Uh, you know, people used to say America was a forgiving nation. Is that even true anymore? I mean, is it true that we are a forgiving nation, that when people apologize, when people say they've changed, when people can point to a record of 30 years and say, this is who I am, we're, we're going to forgive them for something stupid that they did 30 years before? I mean, I think the really the problem that we have, the problem that we have is that moral issues and personal issues are becoming political. They have become politicized. I mean, this is the problem we have with Me Too. Nobody thinks it's right to harass women. Nobody thinks it's right to assault women. Nobody thinks it's right to, you know, make women's job depend on whether they do something for you or not, something sexual for you or not. Of course, all of that is wrong. But the question is, once, but the point is, once it becomes political, all chance of any kind of justice disappears because it's just a question of who whose ox gets gets gored, who is going to get taken down, who the media is going to go after and not go after, who we're going to forgive and who we're going to suddenly see nuances in and who it's nope, it's just black and white. That's it. Roy Moore, 
is a terrible guy in Alabama because decades ago he went out with an underage girl, maybe. He's a bad guy. But Bob Menendez, we got to just hold our noses and vote for him because he's a Democrat in New Jersey, even though he came this close to being convicted of bribery and hanging out with underage uh, hookers, you know. Brett Kavanaugh is uh, guilty without a trial, but with Justin Fairfax in Virginia, let's hear what this woman has to say. You know, let's find out, is she, is she telling the truth? It's all, it suddenly becomes nuanced because Justin Fairfax is a Democrat. And, you know, once you bring the politics into it, once you bring the politics into it, there's no chance of justice. There's no chance of forgiveness. Even as we're arguing, if you have to say, well, you know, that wasn't so bad. This was bad. This is bad enough. That's a, you can't make the decision because really you're always talking about Politics. I mean, these new um, Islamic congresswomen, we're not supposed to question their anti-Semitism. We're not supposed to talk about their, uh, you know, their their uh, aid for countries that treat women terribly, their uh, dislike of Israel, where they have this affection for this Islamic culture that is unfree, that bans other religions. We're not supposed to question that. We're not just supposed to say, oh, is that related to your uh, Islamism? But it's fine to question a judge, uh, a judge candidate, about her Catholicism. I mean, you know, this is uh, this is this lady. Um, I've I've lost her name for a minute. What is it? N- Naomi, give me the last name. Rao, that's it. Naomi, Naomi Rao. She is of Indian descent. She's female. But it's fine to question her. Cory Booker goes after her in her confirmation hearings and and basically asks her if she can serve as a judge because of her Catholic beliefs. Are gay relationships, in your opinion, immoral? Um, Senator, um, I'm not sure, you know, the relevance of that to, you know, I mean, my I, I, I think relevant your opinion. If you think African-American relationships are immoral, do you think gay relationships are immoral? Do you personally uh, believe that gay relationships? No, I do not. You do not believe that? No. You do, do you believe they're a sin? Uh, Senator, you know, my, my personal views on any of these subjects are, are, are things I would put to one side and I would faithfully. So you're not willing to say here that whether, what you, whether you believe it is sinful for a man, uh, two men to be married. You're not you're not willing to comment on that. You know, Senator. Uh, no. Well, excuse me. I'm sorry. I didn't hear your response. My response is that that these are these personal views are ones that I would I would put to one side. Whatever my personal views are on this subject, I would faithfully follow the precedence of the Supreme Court. In 2000, which, excuse me. So, you know, why is that all right? Why, when, whenever anybody, pre- uh, whenever anybody criticized Obama, it was suddenly racist because Obama's skin was brown. She is a woman. She is of Indian descent. Why isn't that racist and sexist? Of course not, because it's all politics. And once it gets to be politics, there's no way that you can get to the moral issue, the underlying moral issues involved. So in Virginia, they have this problem. And the reason it's become hilarious, well, I'll describe in a moment why it's become hilarious. But first, let me talk about Sherry's berries. We were talking about this. Shapiro and I have been talking about these berries because they're just so good. I ate them long before uh, they became sponsors and I just love them. They're just terrific. How they get the berries that huge, I don't know, but then they dip them in milk, dark or white chocolatey goodness. You, They taste so good and they are topped with decadent toppings like chocolate chips, heart and glitter sprinkles. They're always fresh, always tasty, always worth the wait. And of course, they make a great Valentine's Day gift. What could be better? Uh, they arrive fresh with 100% Sherry's Berries guarantee and they ship anywhere nationally. Uh, you can give your long distance love something really sweet on Valentine's Day, which 
is right around the corner. Send her the Valentine's gift of her dreams at the price of your dreams, starting at just $19.99, plus shipping and handling. Plus, order now and make this Valentine's Day really special by getting double the berries for just $10 more. Go to berries.com. That's an easy one. Click on the microphone and enter my code Claven at checkout. That's ba- berries.com, B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com. Click the microphone and enter code Claven order today. And you know, you may say, I, you know, I can't remember from the last commercial. How do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. You forget so quickly how quickly we have it. Here's the hilarious thing about Virginia, okay? And, and it exemplifies what I'm talking about. It exemplifies how you can't make moral decisions in political situations. In Virginia, they have, right, they have the Ralph Northam. Now, I think the guy should have been uh, impeached the minute he started talking about leaving babies to die. But we don't want to talk about that because that's too uh, complex and that's that makes the Democrats look too bad. So we're suddenly talking about this picture he took, a, a racist picture, uh, 36 years ago in his medical school yearbook, right? There's got one guy posing as a Ku Klux Klan member, one guy posing in blackface. And he said he was in the picture. Then he said he wasn't in the picture, but he did play Michael Jackson, blah, 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 blah. So, again, he's he's now got it so in so deep uh, that he just looks bad for lying. Then they say, well, Justin Fairfax, he's an actual black guy. I don't think he that actually is blackface. I think that's his actual face. It's hard to tell in Virginia now because apparently everybody has worn blackface. But Justin Fairfax, I think, is legitimately a black guy. But now he has this lady who says, Dr. Vanessa Tyson, and I call her Dr. Vanessa Tyson because I remember remember how Christine Blasey Ford was always Dr. Ford, even though she was just a Ph.D. Vanessa Tyson, also a Ph.D., a California professor. Uh, she tells she's now told this graphic story of going to uh, Fairfax's hotel room. This is in 2004 before he was married. Uh, they started kissing and then he forced her to to give him oral sex. And it, the story was, you know, it was ugly. It was really ugly. As as CNN would say, if it were a Republican, it's bad if true, right? It's bad if true. We have no idea whether it's true. It should be mentioned that Vanessa Tyson is kind of an activist on this. There's this video of her uh, talking about her very upsetting past. Here's a little piece of that. I was working as a survivor speaker for the Boston Area Rape Crisis Center. Um, And, you know, you came to town. There was a benefit for the Rape Crisis Center where you were our honored guest. And that is how we met. We have similar stories, you and I. Very similar stories. Um, I'm an incest survivor. My father was convicted when I was eight years old on 11 different counts of child molestation. The problem is is that people don't want to hear the message, so we just got to get a little louder. Mm-hmm. Right? And more of us. And there needs to be more of us. Like, yeah, so you know, f- build the numbers, keep the message going, you know, do what we have to do until they start seeing us. So Fairfax says, if this is a longer video, he says if, if she had had a problem with me, she would have mentioned that in the video. Obviously, that's not dispositive ever either. Uh, we don't know what the truth of the matter is. It's very hard to tell. Uh, I, I'm a little sup- suspicious of it. I read the her graphic description, and it was graphic and very upsetting, but I didn't necessarily think it was believable. But, you know, again, you, how, do I, how do I know? I wasn't there. None of us knows. But again... Just to point out the disparity, obviously, with Brett Kavanaugh, he was guilty. With Brett Kavanaugh, day after day after day, the hammering of the press, believe all women, this happened to me, therefore he's guilty. All that logic has gone out the window. And here's why, okay? Because the next guy in line is Mark Herring, who is the the secretary of the attorney general, sorry, uh, the attorney general. And 
And he says, he, he, first of all, he called on Northam to resign immediately. Oh, my God, he wore blackface. That's terrible. And now he is there, a picture around of him showing up at a party dressed as a rapper, wearing blackface. And so he's got to admit to that. So he would have to resign. Why is that a problem? The problem is the next guy in line is the Speaker of the House, Kirk Cox, and he's a Republican. Why is he a Republican? Because in his district, he, he tied with the Democrat around 11,000 votes. They both got exactly the same number of votes. So by law, they picked his name out of a bowl. So the next guy in line is a Republican. How much you want to bet all of those people calling for everybody to resign are suddenly going to get very quiet. Why? They're not going to have, they're not going to lose Virginia to a Republican, no matter what they did. If they have pictures of this woman being attacked, if they have, they have pictures of Northam doing what he did, you know, it, it's just not going to matter. Suddenly, everything is going to change. The same is with Roy Moore and Bob Menendez. They were telling us anybody who even thought of voting for Roy Moore was just as bad as a child molester. You know, you are just as bad as Roy Moore. But suddenly with Bob Menendez, it's like, ah, just, you know, it's just hold your nose. This is all going to disappear. I, I do not believe that these three guys are going to be sent out of power. And if, if one guy is not is sent out of power for doing blackface, then another guy has to be. And if ever, we have to believe all women, then we have to believe that Justin Fairfax is guilty. I mean, you know, they just cannot maintain their uh, integrity in this situation and not lose the state. And they're not going to lose the state because it's politics and it's always about politics. And the whole problem with it is, is all of us have done bad things. Now, that doesn't excuse a crime. If this guy actually assaulted this lady, as she says he did, that's a crime and that's very different. But blackface 30 years ago, listen, I, you know, I got I want to just think out loud about this for a minute. Not all instances of blackface are going to be the same. I am very cognizant of why a black guy, I can un totally understand why a black guy, a black girl, might feel this is really offensive and hurtful for somebody to do it. It goes back to a tradition of blackface that wasn't necessarily insulting per se, but it was basically said that black people didn't really exist. It's, we they were just kind of this funny little culture to the side. And in order for us to enjoy their music, we white people had to imitate them. So it's a hurtful idea in the first place. But let's take another example of blackface. Let's say a kid, and I've talked about this before, a kid, a, a white kid wants to go out for Halloween as Black Panther. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a positive thing? A black kid wants to go out as Batman. Would anybody say, you can't go out as Batman? You're black and Batman is white. You can't put on one of those plastic masks that has a white face on it. You're, you're black and Batman. You know, who would say that? Who would say that to a kid? Would you say to your white son, oh, no, 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 you can't be uh, the hero Black Panther. You have to be a white hero. It would be a horrible, awful thing to say. And so if he went out, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It's a, it is a wonderful thing that a white kid watches Black Panther and says, oh, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy for Halloween. That would be a good thing. It would be positive. It's this intersectionality that makes that seem even problematical, as the left would say, at all. It's not problematical. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. When on earth has there been a country where, we, where a kid might say that, where a kid might not even think about the fact that Black Panther had a different skin tone than him? Because ultimately, who gives a rat's? right? I mean, who gives a rat? Black Panther's a hero. Batman's a hero. A little boy might want to be either one of those heroes. And, and that would be a, that's a good thing. That's an, a, a tribute to what America uh, is, what it's become, what its ideas have made it. And the fact that they undermine it is just the stupidity of their incredible philosophy, their incredibly bad philosophy. Intersectional, 
Intersectionality is racism, and racism is stupid. Therefore, intersectionality is stupid. And you want to talk about stupid ideas? You know, <laughs> I, I was watching poor Elizabeth Warren. I'm not beginning to feel, I feel feeling sorry for all these Democrats at this point. I was watching Elizabeth Warren, and she's been caught yet again claiming to be an American Indian on an application for the bar in Texas, I think it was. And, and so this is back in the 80s. And it kind of undermines, it undermines her idea that she was never trying to benefit from this. You know, she keeps saying, oh, I never benefited from this. But obviously she was trying to benefit from it because in a psychopathic culture, in a culture where race becomes everything, where identity becomes everything, yeah, you're going to pretend to be racist, you're not. You're going to have people identifying as racist, or they're not. You're going to have people imitating hate crimes, which happens in colleges all over the place, where there'll be a noose hung up on some guy's dorm, and oh yeah, I really put it there. I mean, what kind of craziness is that where you have to make yourself a victim in order to feel good about yourself? So, I, I think now, at this point, Elizabeth Warren ought to identify as toast because I think <laughs> she's toast when it comes to being president. I think she ought to, I'm, I'm identifying as a hot dog because I'm done. I'm cooked. But here she is apologizing. It's painful to watch. And she's still being mealy-mouthed about it. I am sorry that I extended confusion about tribal citizenship and tribal sovereignty and for harm caused. I am also sorry for not being more mindful of this uh, decades ago. Tribes and only tribes determine tribal citizenship. I had a good conversation with Chief Baker. He was very gracious and uh, we continue to talk about issues and continue to work on issues that matter deeply to Indian country uh, and uh, continue to work on things that we both care a lot about. Nothing about my background ever had anything to do with any job I got in any place. It's been fully documented and there's no evidence. She's still being mealy-mouthed because she's saying I'm not a member of a tribe. She's not an Indian. She, we, she did the test. We know she has virtually no uh, Amer uh, Native American blood. So it's just this kind of crazy philosophy. And that's what I'm really worried about. I'm worried about the crazy philosophy of the left. That's why I thought it was such a good moment when uh, in the State of the Union address, when Donald Trump called them out for their socialism because they've been bragging about their socialism, but they do not like being called out about it. When, when suddenly somebody says, wait a minute, you said you're a socialist. They're like, don't call me a socialist. I'm a socialist. You can't call me a socialist when I'm a socialist. That's ridiculous. They hated it. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But first, ring. You want your house to be secure. I want my house to be secure. It matters a lot to me. It matters when I'm there and it matters when I'm not there. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You probably already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. Somebody comes to your door, you can see them, you can talk to them. Even if you're not home, you can do it on your phone from far away. So you can check out somebody who's coming. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. So there's a, if a, so if there's a package delivery surprise visitor, you can check them out. Now they also have uh, spotlights that come on automatically. Uh, they have all kinds of ways that they can protect your home and help you keep watching your home even when you're not there. As a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring Starter Kit available right now with a video doorbell and motion-activated floodlight cam. The Starter Kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. How do you get it? You go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your house, you can say, who goes there? And how do you spell Clavin? And if they don't know, open fire. Uh, you know, this thing about socialism, I got to play just the briefest clip 
of Stephen Colbert talking about socialism. And the reason I say this is Stephen, I don't mean to just pick on him. He is representative of an entire class of Hollywood elites and intellectual elites who think this way, who think this way, and that Stephen Colbert can come on and preach to people every day with this level of thought, this level of dopiness, it is an amazing thing. It really is. And it, it, I wish I wish there was some way to stop it without violating our core beliefs in free speech. But there's not. I mean, we have to allow it. We have to call it out. Listen to this. On Halloween, kids literally go door to door to get free candy from the neighbors because the kids don't have it and the neighbors do. That, that's socialism. That's socialism. The kids going door to door saying trick or treat and the neighbors have candy and they give the candy to the kids and that's socialism with one exception. In socialism, the kids have guns and the neighbors don't want to give the candy, but they have to. That's the difference. That is the whole difference. The, enti- the fact, the fact that Stephen Colbert could stand in front of his audience of millions and say that to them is insane. And the fact that only Donald Trump really calls them out the way they need to be called out is is just amazing. I mean, listen, here is a Wall Street Journal just um, talking about some of the things that they're proposing. Medicare for all sounds great. This is Bernie Sanders plan. It's been endorsed by 16 other senators and would replace all private health insurance in the U.S. with a federally administered single payer health care program. Government would decide what care to deliver, which drugs to pay for and how much to pay doctors and hospitals. Private insurance would be banned. And remember when this first they first started talking about this and we started talking about death panels and they started saying, no, 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 there won't be death panels. There'll just be a panel that decides when you die, but it won't be a death panel. It'll just be a a panel of death. You know, I mean, that's what it'll be. But of course there is. And of course you get fewer drugs, you get less research. You, you know, you people who are young, you get old and suddenly those pills aren't there that'll keep you from getting dementia. You won't know why it'll be be because of that. Uh, The Green New Deal. Uh, This is Alexandria Occasional Cortex put out her plan for this. This idea is endorsed by 40 House Democrats. Several Democratic presidential candidates would require that the U.S. be carbon neutral within 10 years. (laughs) It's just like I was kidding around on Knowles' show. They want to they want to be progressive because they want to progress to the fact to the point where we're all living in the jungle with tattoos and rings in our ears and nose and face. You know, that's that's not progress. How on earth? 11% of U.S. energy, 11% of U.S. energy is non-carbon. How on earth in 10 years are you going to get to 90 more percent, 89 more percent? And as Cortez, uh, Ocasio-Cortez imagines it, all of this would be planned by a select committee for a Green New Deal. This is so, this, that's the Soviet Union. That's the Soviet Union. People, those wonderful people going back to this idea that people are good, that people are wise, that people can control things and make them better instead of this wonderful system, capitalism and uh, free market capitalism and freedom, where each one of us, out of our own self-interest, bargains our way to a better world. Why does that work? Because each one of us wants to get ahead. And in order to make a free and open deal that's non-forced, that is not people, little kids with uh, guns going around saying trick or treat or die, you know, <laughs> like hand over the candy or die, which is what socialism is, that in each, in each ag- agreement, in, in a free market system, both parties benefit. 
If you didn't think it was worth handing over your X number of dollars to get your phone or to get your TV, you wouldn't do it. And if the TV people didn't think it was worth giving you the TV to get your money, they wouldn't do it. Everybody benefits when the choices are made for free. And another thing, they're proposing a guaranteed government job for everybody to assist in this 10-year transformation of society. The Green New Deal's authors would provide all members of our society across all regions and all communities the opportunity, training, and education to be a full and equal participant in the transition, including through a job guarantee program to assure a living wage job to every person who wants one. How? How? How are you going to do that? How are you going to pay it? And, oh, by the way, they want they want the government to control corporations. This is Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I'm much more worried about this than whether she's um, the Cheyenne or an Apache. I mean, say, she wants a new federal charter for businesses. If a business makes more than $1 billion in annual revenue, companies would have to answer to more than shareholders. Employees would elect 40% of directors who would be obliged to consider benefits beyond returns to the owners, like a better world. Amazing that the government wants to tell businesses how they're going to construct themselves. I want to say, funnily enough, Nancy Pelosi was asked about this new Green Deal, and she said it will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive, the Green Dream or whatever they call it. Nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? That's Nancy Pelosi. So we have the lady from San Francisco, this radical from San Francisco, dissing the Green Deal because that's how far left they've gone. You know, it's all about ideas, and underlying these ideas, there's a lot of things underline it, but one of them is the idea that people are good, that if the government could just run the corporations, they could do it better than corporate people acting out of self-interest, because they don't have self-interest. Alexandria Occasional Cortex, she doesn't have self-interest. She's good. She's good. No one is good. Not one. And that's the problem. Listen, that's the problem with racism, is not the fact that you think other people are bad. Other people are bad. It's that you're just as bad. That's the problem with racism. But the it's also the problem with leftism, because basically you're saying there is someone around more fair, more just, better, who can make the decisions better than a system that pits us against each other, each of us looking out for our self-interest. Can't be done. Why? Because there is no person like that. When Jesus comes back, he can run the government until that day. I want to be free. I want to be free. All right, we got Jamie Glazoff coming up to talk about uh, his new book, which is really uh, an interesting book about, it's called uh, Jihadist Psychopath. Very controversial. I think we're going to stay on, but, you know, uh, stay on Facebook and YouTube so you can watch the whole show. But please go over to dailywire.com and subscribe. We had a great mailbag uh, yesterday. I'm going to answer one more mailbag question at the end of the show for Valentine's Day. But uh, you can only ask questions in the mailbag. You can only ask questions backstage. You can only get the whole, th- our, our show scream, screaming and streaming, streaming and screaming. We do them both. Uh, if you subscribe, so go to dailywire.com. It's 10 bucks a month, a lousy 100 bucks, and you get the entire year plus the leftist tears tumbler. All right, we got Jamie Glazoff with us. Yes? Yes. Okay. He holds a PhD in history with a specialty in Russian, U.S., and Canadian foreign policy. He's the editor of Front Page Magazine, the author of United in Hate, The Left's Romance with Tyranny and Terror, and the host of the web TV show, The Glazoff Gang. His new book, Jihadist Psychopath, is out now. Jamie, you there? I am here. What an honor to be here, Drew. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's really great to have you. It's been a long time since we've actually uh, spoken, so it's nice to get a chance to talk to you. Uh, I got to say, this title... A jihadist psychopath, and it says how he is charming, seducing, and devouring us. 
Man, oh man, that is a very provocative idea. Give me, give me an idea of what is the premise of this book. Well, it is provocative, but it, it's just common sense once you begin to study this phenomenon. So, Drew, for many years I studied how psychopaths operate. And we have them in our families, we have them in our work, we have them in our neighborhood. And God forbid that we're one, because as you were saying earlier, <laughs> not everybody's good. But those of us that aren't, we don't want to get caught in their crosshairs, in their web. And psychopaths have a certain step-by-step -step process in which they operate. They romance, they seduce, they charm, then they grasp, and then they devour. Now, when I studied this for years, that step-by-step -step process that they engage in, when I studied the Islamization of America and of the West, when I studied what jihad and stealth jihad is doing to us and how we are surrendering, I saw that in every single step-by-step -step process, it's exactly the same thing. And that's what my book shows. So, for instance, just off the top of my head, I'll give two examples. After the clasping stage, when the psychopath has you in his grasp, the psychopath has a, a very central tactic. He punches you in the face. Then he starts sulking and pouting in the corner, and you're apologizing to him. The perpetrator becomes the victim and plays the pity card, and his victim feels sorry for him and apologizes. Very quickly, just look around what's happening. Jihad is stabbing kafirs in France, screaming Allahu Akbar. Within 30 minutes, our establishment media covers it in this way. Oh, the Muslim community is fearing a backlash. And all of a sudden, our society is apologizing to the Muslim community for our quote-unquote Islamophobia. That's one example. Um, I can give some more examples, but you, you get the basic idea, Drew. It's very scary stuff. It, it, you know, it is scary, and it certainly has been scary to watch the uh, kind of lying down of the West, especially in Europe, where they won't even call out a rape gang because they're afraid of being called racist. But there is an, uh, another side to this, so let me put this before you, just hear what you have to say about it. Uh, when you talk about the charm of a psychopath, isn't there some kind of division in the Muslim world between those who want to take over the West and those who actually want to live in the West? Aren't there uh, patriotic Muslims who want to be part of America, part of the West? And uh, shouldn't we make a distinction between those two kinds of Muslims? Well, absolutely. But just a sec, you have to be very careful with that. But I discussed this in my book. By the way, the thesis of, I know you're just being yourself provocative there with a question. By the way, this is the psychopath's agenda. This very discussion is part of the jihadist psychopath's agenda because there are groundless accusations made against us. One of the groundless accusations is that somehow where, where I stand, Robert Spencer stands, Pamela Geller stands, somehow we hate all Muslim people. This is a lie. It is BS. I stress this in my book. Our issue is Islam and the devout Muslims who follow it. We are not discussing all Muslims. One of the tactics of the jihadist psychopath is to conflate Islam with Muslims. No, we are discussing Islam. So there are millions of people born into the Muslim environment who have no choice whether they are Muslim or not. They go Muslim by label, by name. We have Muslim neighbors, Muslim friends, many Muslim people. There are many people even in my TV show that have worked with the Glazov gang that are quote unquote Muslim, 
because they have the Muslim label. But they don't know anything about Sharia. They don't follow Surahs 9.5 and 9.29 running around killing unbelievers. They don't know very much about the Quran. They don't follow Jihad. They don't follow those commands. Of course, there's millions of good Muslim people in our view of good, but they're considered bad Muslims by Islam because Muslims are not greater than Islam. So we have to be careful with that, Drew. We love all people. For instance, at the Glazov gang, we work on behalf of the victims of Muslim, uh, excuse me, of Islamic female genital mutilation. There's 500 Muslim girls in this country alone that are the target right now that are at risk. We're trying to save them. Am I an Islamophobe? Is Robert Spencer an Islamophobe? Pamela Geller, she hates Muslims so much that she's trying to save Muslim girls from female genital mutilation. You see how they set this up? It is a lie. We love Muslim people. We know there are millions of good Muslim people and peaceful Muslims. Uh, okay, well, our problem is Islamic ideology, its violent teachings, and the devout Muslims who follow it. Well, let me let me ask you about this. I'm talking to Jamie Glazov, the author of the new book, Jihadist Psychopath. Dennis Prager says it's one of the most important books of the present time. Uh, that's quite a, a blurb from Dennis. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I seriously believe that it is completely valid and non-bigoted to criticize ideas and, I, and ideologies. I do not think it is a bigoted thing to say, uh, you know, I don't like Catholic ideology because of this or that. I don't like Islamic ideology because of this or that. What I want to know, and, I, and I've talked to Robert Spencer, and Robert Spencer is a, you know, a uh, real, uh, very incredibly knowledgeable about the Quran and about uh, beliefs, and you too have really studied this hard. Is there a version of Islam? Is there a version of the religion of Islam that is not jihadist, that is not, um, you know, that doesn't want to take down the West, that doesn't want to transform us into a Sharia society? The first question, the first answer is no, in the sense that all four schools of Islamic jurisprudence teach Islamic supremacism. There is not a version of Islam that rejects Islamic supremacism and jihad. That's the first answer. Okay. However, Muslims are not larger than Islam. That is Islamic doctrine, and we have to face that and get over our Stockholm syndrome and face the fact that that is the doctrine of Islam. When they follow the Prophet Muhammad, they are following his actions. Study the life of Muhammad. However, this does not mean that Muslims are not capable as individuals to create their own Islam and be peaceful people and many are, but that doesn't mean that they represent Islam. There are many Catholics, Drew, that practice birth control. It doesn't mean that the Catholic Church condones birth control. There's okay. a difference between Islam and what it is and what individuals may do, but they may be seen as bad Muslims by Islam. Interesting. All right. Well, now I haven't I haven't had a chance to, to read it. I haven't they haven't actually sent me the copy of this book yet, but I did read your a previous book, United and Hate, The Left's Romance with Tyranny and Terror. Why do you think the left is is so soft on Islam, especially especially making uh, uh, excuses for the jihadists. I mean, it's one thing to say I'm against religious bigotry. It's one thing to disagree with what you just said and say, no, there is a version of Islam that's peaceful, uh, of central Islam that's peaceful, and you can debate that and argue about that. But the left has openly sort of, you know, given 
jihadists a pass and repeatedly said things like Loretta Lynch said, we may never know the motive of a guy who blows up a gay, uh, shoots up a gay bar uh, saying I'm working <laughs> for Islam. Why is the left uh, so soft on them? Well, let me just go back for one second, just in terms of the discussion that we're having and the important questions that you're asking, Andrew. The very fact that that is still being discussed shows what the problem is because many people commute kenneth levin wrote about this in the oslo syndrome how communities operate under siege we're still talking about this after how many years has it been since 9 11 oh but there's a nice muslim neighbor down the street there are nice muslim people we know all of this the issue is what islam teaches and many people cannot get past this they need to believe that there is a good Islam because once you accept the truth about what Islam really is, it's very scary for most people to face that. So during the Oslo, you know, the Oslo syndrome, for instance, many Israelis, they couldn't face the truth about what the Palestinian death cult really wants for them. So they need to believe just a little bit more land just a little bit more money, just a little bit more hugs, and then Hamas will like us. There's a deep need for people to believe this, Andrew. Very quickly, the second part of your question is what you were talking about earlier about Cortez and the leftist mindset. The left lives in a fairy tale world. They reject God's creation. They reject God. They have appointed themselves as social redeemers. They are going to build a perfect planet. So the left wants to destroy its own post-democratic society, its capitalist society. They want ground zero in order to build their classless utopia. In order to achieve that, it makes sense that they are in solidarity with adversarial cultures and ideologies. It explains why the left was in league with the Soviet regime and with communism during the Cold War. That romance continues today with Islam because they both share those shared values of destroying free society. Jamie Glazov, I got to stop you there. Uh, host of the web TV show, The Glazov, the Glazov Gang, author of Jihadist Psychopath, How He is Charming, Seducing and Devouring Us. Jamie, thanks for coming on. It's good to talk to you. Great to see you again, Drew. I'll talk to you soon. Um, pretty intense. That was very intense. I, you know, I got to give it some thought. Uh, I want to answer one last question. We'll end with, we'll end with some love. I think here would be uh, a good way to go into the Clavenless weekend. Uh, there was this one mailbag question that I just couldn't get to two weeks in a row from Daniel. Uh, he says, help me, Andrew Claven. You're my only hope. <clears throat> I said, thank you for writing the great good thing. It was a definitive step in my spiritual journey. And maybe just as importantly, it was a big step in making you my favorite podcaster. Uh, please do not tell Ben. Um, my question is simple and urgent. Who is your favorite love poet? And what is your favorite love poem of all time? I have to memorize one to recite to my wife for an upcoming event, and I would greatly appreciate some recommendations. Well, I hope I'm not too late, first of all. You know, the funny thing is, is that I, I'm not, most love poetry is, is not, 
what you think it is. It's not Hallmark cards. It's very complex. Obviously, if you want a love poem that you can say directly to somebody, uh, Shakespeare had all those great sonnets, so I compare thee to a, a summer's day. My own personal favorite love poem, I'm a little embarrassed to say, is by a woman to her husband, Anne Bradstreet, uh, wrote the poem uh, To My Dear and Loving Husband, which begins with just these wonderful lines, if ever two were one, then surely we, if ever man were loved by wife, then thee, if ever wife was happy in a man, compare with me, ye women, if you can. But obviously that doesn't help you. So let me tell you a great love poem. I can't tell you the best love poem, but here is a great love poem by one of my favorites, William Wordsworth. She was a phantom of delight, and you have to listen to it carefully because it is a really brilliant poem. It's three stages of a man's relationship to a woman. It is Wordsworth is supposed to be Wordsworth's poem to his wife. He had one of the very few great marriages in literary history. He had a wonderful, wonderful marriage, and uh, they they always said that um, his wife never said a word except "God bless you." That's what they said. Anyway, she was a phantom of delight. Now, let me read it to you. Three stages of his relationship to his wife. She was a phantom of delight. When first she gleamed upon my sight, a lovely apparition sent to be a moment's ornament, her eyes as stars of twilight fair, like twilight's too, her dusky hair. But all things else about her drawn from daytime and the cheerful dawn, a dancing shape, an image gay to haunt, to startle, and waylay. I saw her upon nearer view, a spirit, yet a woman too her household motions light and free, and steps of virgin liberty, a countenance in which did meet sweet records, promises as sweet, a creature not too bright or good for human nature's daily food, for transient sorrows, simple wiles, praise, blame, love, kisses, tears, and smiles. And now I see, with eye serene, the very pulse of the machine, a being breathing thoughtful breath, a traveler, between life and death, the reason firm, the temperate will, endurance, foresight, strength, and skill, a perfect woman nobly planned to warn, to comfort, and command, and yet a spirit still and bright with something of angelic light. It's just a, you got to read it yourself, read it carefully. It's a wonderful print. Uh, transition from he sees her first as a phantom, as an ideal, as an idea, and he's falling in love with her, but she's kind of just a, a moment's ornament. Uh, she is this this spirit. Then he gets to know her. She, he probably marries her at this point, and he sees her. Uh, she's, a, she's in her household motions. She's a spirit, yet she's a woman too, and he sees that she is, um, you know, she's got sweet records in her face. She's got history written in her face, uh, and, you know, history writes itself on your face, not through beauty or through light. It puts wrinkles on there, but she's also got promises as sweet. What she's going to become is beautiful, a creature not too bright or good for human nature's daily food. In other words, she's not a spirit. She's a woman, and at the end, he sees her as a wonderful woman, who is a spirit too, so that her womanhood does not get in the way of her being a spirit. And it's these three stages of understanding a woman, a man understanding a woman, uh, going from seeing her as a kind of uh, idea to seeing her as a woman, a practical human being, and to seeing her as a practical human being who embodies that idea of womanhood. It's a very beautiful progression, a very uh, wonderful tribute to his wife. And in doing that, in writing that, he's writing also a tribute to marriage because it teaches you so much about the other half of human life. I've always said that men and women are like the lenses of a stereo opticon. If you're only looking through one of them, uh, you're not seeing the world in 3D. And I believe that 
personally, that, or at least my experience is, that it's only through marriage, only through loving a woman over time, that you get that other lens and start to see, ah, I get it. It's a whole world. It's not just the world I see. It's the world she sees as well, the world she experiences as well. And then you're suddenly really alive uh, and really deeply uh, invested in the world. That's it. You're on your own. Take care of yourselves. It's chaos, darkness out there. But The Clavin Show will be back on Monday. Survivors, gather here. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, Virginia implodes. Democratic presidential candidates drop like flies and the specter of socialism looms. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show.